Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie, and as always, I'm with my co-host, Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you, man? Howdy, howdy. I'm great, Jamie. Thanks. Today's really exciting because we are lucky enough to be welcoming Nathan Fisher. Nathan is a PhD student at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and the winner of the Francisco J. Varela Research Award from the Mind and Life Institute. He's writing his dissertation on the dark night of the soul in Jewish, Christian, and Islamic paths. And more generally, he's got an interest in mystic traditions and how they meet with modern day clinical practice. Nathan, how are you, mate? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. So I used a phrase there, the dark night of the soul. And this is something that you hear in meditation contexts, other spiritual contexts, and occasionally even in pop culture. What is the dark night of the soul in broad, high level terms? Great question. Certainly depends who you ask. As you mentioned, it's become a term that's used in a lot of different meditative traditions today and has been incorporated into some, you know, Buddhist practice traditions. The original term comes from really St. John of the Cross. In his teachings in the 16th century, you actually have four different dark nights. Two of the dark nights are called the passive dark nights of the senses and of the spirit. And they're understood to be particularly challenging phases or stages on the contemplative path which in that, you know, Carmelite Catholic contemplative path was leading to a kind of a a mystical marriage with God or with the divine. So these were sort of seen to be necessary, you know, difficulties to be traversed en route to that goal. Today, those definitions are sometimes used precisely in certain, you know, Catholic traditions and other times it's come to just refer to any sort of difficult or challenging stage encountered in different contemplative paths that are seen to be sort of necessary, right? That aren't the result of going off the path or doing something wrong. They're sort of seen to be like necessary difficulties or or entail necessary suffering. I love this. And just before we go on, I'd love to hear more about the, you say there's four dark nights, there's two passive, and then I guess you're implying that there's two active as well. Can you say a little bit about what each are? That would just be like, I think a good basis for our discussion as well. Sure. I mean, so the active dark nights are actually like intentional ways that you're orienting your own practice. So they're not so much experiences that you're having. The the passive just means like these are things that happen to you without really your agency or control. So in the passive night of the senses, Basically, it's understood that you're, you're being weaned off of a certain kind of positive reinforcement or like a, a certain way of engaging with your religiosity or religious tradition where, you know, the rituals are very like evocative and meaningful. And, but the pleasure is kind of like a sensory based pleasure. And then in the passive night of the spirit, you actually are getting weaned off of more spiritual gifts or nourishment. After you're weaned off of the sort of sensory gifts, you start to enter into more contemplative states of of absorption that are seen to be kind of like spiritual gifts and and spiritual nourishment and are, are important and crucial to go through in that path. 
But there does come a point where then you become weaned off of even those so as to be able to enter into a more fuller and more mature relationship with the divine and not one that's just based on sort of like receiving this nourishment. And, you know, the imagery is very much like parental and even sort of like breastfeeding imagery. And the weaning is is a metaphor that's used by St. John of the Cross to refer to both of these transitions, right? It's a it's a developmental kind of metaphor to ultimately get get to this goal. Right. So it sucks is my impression reading about the Dark Knight of the Soul for a significant portion of it. Why does it suck? Yeah. So again, people dance it down differently, right? So that's sort of like the orthodox, Carmelite, Catholic understanding of what, you know, these two different dark nights are. And then there's other understandings of difficult and necessary challenges in other traditions. But the reason why it sucks is because like what was so fun and enjoyable was being taken away from you. All of the things that were drawing you to this practice and to this tradition, you no longer have access to in these transitional sort of liminal stages. So the first one is more straightforward in the dark night of the senses, but the dark night of the spirit, it gets more complicated and contemporary teachers talk about it in a few different ways. But one of the things that you lose in the dark night of the spirit is your normal meaning-making structures. It's a period of like real confusion, of loss of meaning, of bewilderment, you know, sort of like the rock and the worldview that has sustained you thus far in your life. And if you're getting to the dark night of the spirit in in the Catholic tradition, you've gone quite a ways already. So all of that starts to dissolve. And so that's tremendously challenging to deal with. And you feel a sense of being abandoned by God and the divine and... So it really does suck for those who report it. Yeah, you know, you see this in a lot of other contemplative traditions as well, where you have to give up the path. At some point in time, you can't take the practice with you any longer. The practice was never meant to be a forever practice. It was meant to get you over a stream. And then you're meant to leave the boat behind. But imagine if you've like, you know, you really like your boat and you've made it your boat and you've like carved a beautiful masthead on it and you're really comfortable in your boat. And the boat gives you all these gifts. It like protects you and saves you and makes you, gives you all this meaning in the world. But if you're really going to continue on, you have to be willing to leave the vehicle aside. Of course, that would be a place filled with confusion. What are the baseline things that you have to give up? Because it sounds like there's a transition from point A to point B and you're giving something up. What is actually changing in you during that transition? I mean, so far we've been talking about like specifically in these Catholic contemplative paths. I'd say there is a lot of different ways of interpreting it, even within other varieties of Christianity. Never mind when you start talking about necessary difficulties in like Jewish or Islamic paths. So the answer will be different depending on those paths and also like the sub-traditions within them. You know, there's very few things that we could say hold true for like all Jewish mystical traditions or even all Islamic mystical traditions. But one of the sort of patterns in the way that some of these transitions are described is that there is a fundamental change in your identity that's occurring, right? So this is where it starts to get more similar to some Asian traditions, which have a lot of focus on altering various senses of self, right? Or senses of identity. And so this is one that particularly in talking about these like final transitions to some of the goals in Abrahamic paths, 
you're really talking about altering your normal sense of self and the way that you are in the world and maybe your sense of agency and maybe your sense of embodiment and maybe there are some other perceptual changes that are happening definitely some emotional changes that are happening so it's it's really quite a spectrum but fundamentally there there is a kind of a deep change in one sense of self that's happening across all three traditions what does that feel like i mean i i couldn't tell you from personal experience i can tell you some of the ways that that it's described in the different nice. traditions one of the descriptions is relating to like senses of agency right so there are a lot of descriptions of your personal agency being eclipsed in a certain way and that certain actions and wise and skillful behavior is sort of happening outside of your control or outside of your agency whether all the time or in certain you know circumstances or contexts there are descriptions also of bliss and pleasure not always the like really intense kinds of ecstasy that can happen earlier in the stages in particular like states of absorption but sometimes the other thing that particularly in some of the jewish and islamic traditions that really emphasize the prophetic path is that there's a tremendous sense of like deep calling and movement towards service on behalf of of other people right whether your particular community or the world as a whole So there's a feeling of really being called into doing a lot of work back in the world of creation, right? Even after you've had a very a, a kind of an ascent to achieve some sort of intimacy with the divine, you feel called back into the world and in the work that that there is to do. I know we usually go the way of like looking at these things in research terms, but this is just such a fascinating topic because we've talked about this with lots of other people, dark night type scenarios. We talk a lot about some of the challenges that meditation, especially, you know, insight generating meditations can produce. But I just love this talk, especially set in this context of the tradition, you know, coming from John of the Cross. So, just two more traditional questions. One, do we have to go through these? and does it always end and is there anything you can do to like help it end or help it mature i mean are there pointings for how to go through the dark night in a sort of comprehensive or a good way yeah for sure so i mean i think it's helpful to talk about you know contemporary traditions because in the mm-hmm. classical texts it does seem that you have to go through these stages that being said sometimes you'll get the description of like all these sequential stages like in Teresa of Avila for example mm-hmm. and then there'll be like a little like side note like oh by the way like sometimes you go through them in different orders you know or sometimes yeah. you kind of like go through the back door and of one of the mansions of the soul and so you get kind of different perspectives on that from the traditions there seems to be that most of these traditions are still dealing with kind of purification frameworks So there there seems to be some amount of difficulty that's going to be involved with sure some kind of purification but yeah as to whether and and how long and how much distress is involved in a particular stage that's going to vary quite a bit and there's going to be debate you know within traditions on that so yes and no and then what can yeah. be done that's a question that is also helpful to look at in terms of clinical practice also like 
on the one hand, it's like, okay, what's in the text and what are teachers saying today? And then it's like, okay, how ought this inform clinical practice and or for pr practitioners, like how to go through it? And so I would say that there are helpful things that you can do. There is an understanding, a kind of an emic understanding that you can get stuck in some of these stages and, and practitioners and teachers that I've interviewed have talked about that happening. And it's complex because other people might say that wasn't that stage or whatever, right? So there's not sort of uniformity of, of perspectives here. But for the traditions that have embraced more psychological kinds of frameworks, oftentimes like going to therapy is something that can be very helpful. And or there may be like psychological content that's coming up during a centering prayer practice or doing other contemplative prayer sort of sessions. And you may or may not be actually going into that content on the cushion, so to speak, but it may behoove you or your teacher or guide may suggest that it would be wise to unpack some of that in, you know, a clinical context or, or with, a, with a clinician of some way. Seems like you'd have to have a pretty specialized clinician here, right? Somebody who speaks this language a little, at least understands the territory of that language, so that they're not just saying, well, look, you're depressed, rather than saying, no, this is a part of a spiritual growth cycle. You're being asked now to leave aside particular ideas that you've held true for a long time. And of course, that's jostling and very weird, but you're being invited into a new space of seeing that you're something more than these addictions to certain kinds of things. I mean, that's that's not just every clinician can do that, is it? I mean, there, it sort of seems like you should have a spiritual crisis clinician or something step in here. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think that's the hope with some of the research that, that I've done and done with some of my colleagues is that it starts to inform some clinical practice. And also, yeah, I do think it's to really do kind of like culturally sensitive clinical care to offer that, it entails a degree of expertise that like most clinicians are probably not going to have. So this is where, you know, things like spiritual directors or spiritual companions or other people who are sort of like intermediary. The classic models were that, you know, your teacher would offer this and would hopefully be sensitive enough to your particular needs and background and to be able to really tailor the practices to you. I mean, it's one of the reasons why in a lot of Abrahamic traditions, you don't get as much explicit description in the text because it was always sort of relegated to the oral transmission and seen necessarily so. But I, I do think that's sort of the hope that we can raise sort of the awareness of these kinds of things happening for mainstream psychology and psychiatry. And then that there would be, you know, particular experts who, who focus, who are grounded in, in the traditions and some of these communities and the practices to be able to offer the, you know, that level of care and also discernment. That's kind of the crucial thing too, because you might think that you're in a dark night or somebody else might tell you you're in a dark night, but all these traditions also acknowledge there are ways to like really go off the path and like do harm through these practices. They're tremendously powerful. They can result in these like really beneficial and maybe adaptive kinds of deep transformations but they are neutral. They can also rewire things in maladaptive directions too. So 
that level of discernment would also be something really important to have, you know, whether it's your guide, teacher, spiritual director, something like that, yeah. How do you fall into one? So according to the traditions, you fall into these kinds of states because it's the developmental trajectory of growth that these practices catalyze, right? So particularly once you start getting into these more deep absorption states, that's where things get sort of ratcheted up several notches and the like intensity and amplification of difficult or challenging material can definitely shift there. And I think it is important, even in, in the Catholic sort of original dark nights, they sort of sandwiched these states of absorption, right? So the reason why you have the difficulties at the beginning is because it's actually what you need to give up in order to access these states of absorption. And then the reason why you have them on the other side is because that's what's necessary to bring you into this fuller flowering of your development and your life. Right. Right. So it's sort of like you get hit, you get hit at the beginning, you hit at the end, you get hit at the beginning because you've got a bunch of stuff to work through and actually working through it is what gets you ready. But then when you start relinquishing those things, you get hit again because there's a sort of backlash and it's through working through that backlash that then you can really sort of settle and be stable in those in those deeper states. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's fair to say. And I think that probably holds true for for all, you know, three Abrahamic traditions. Is this something that people only who pursue spiritual practices run into? Or can you have no spiritual practice and find yourself here? So we definitely have like a range. So basically, I mean, my research was into meditation-related difficulties. I worked on this study actually in, in Buddhist traditions for about three years, where we were documenting the different difficulties and challenging experiences that practitioners and teachers reported, and then the different ways that they interpreted them, right? So they sometimes interpret them as necessary, right? That you have to go through, right? The, the challenging stages of insight. There's a bunch of different conceptions in different Buddhist traditions. Or it could be that, you know, something went wrong, whether the teaching went wrong, the practice wasn't appropriate, it was too advanced, like something like that, it wasn't well suited to you. Or sometimes these things that are like in the middle, where like, yeah, it was a necessary state, right? It was like a dukkha but then you got like trapped in it or something like that, right? So that general framework holds true also for the Abrahamic traditions. What I have been documenting are the difficulties and then the ways that they're interpreted. We're still sort of in the process of like, okay, like which ones do we as researchers think are most compelling or should inform clinical practice, right? But like that jump is, is definitely one that we want to exercise a lot of care around and not just adopting one, you know, spiritual model or their understanding for like exactly how that should be done. So yeah, just, just wanted to kind of like throw that into the mix. And then Jamie, can you ask your question again? Uh, yeah. Like, do you need to have a spiritual practice to run into this? Are there cases where somebody without a spiritual practice wakes up? And maybe even like a contemplative practice, not just a spiritual practice, you know, mm. like, can you just be going to church on Sundays, Christian, and still bump into these things? Or is this only the outcome of sort of contemplative training? Yeah. So I'd say that what we've seen is that it more often shows up within the context of a sustained sort of disciplined contemplative practice. I did actually interview a few people who had very like strong and dramatic kinds of experiences, some of which were quite difficult or challenging. 
after a very, very small amount of practice, or for one person, it was like the first time they kind of opened themselves up just to sort of like petitionary prayer, like not even a particularly contemplative, meditative like approach. So this is also where the traditions kind of like say, I mean, in Buddhism, it's sort of be like, oh yeah, it's karma, you know, you're ripe, like things just kind of like happen when they do. In Abrahamic traditions, there's a similar, you know, it's like, okay, well, this was just God or the divine that was calling this to you for some reason, it, it happened in this way. So people definitely report very strong experiences at different stages. Again, definitely more if you're actively involved in these, these kinds of practices. But I mean, I have seen where it, it happens without intensive practice or, or sometimes without any practice at all. And then the question is like, is that the dark night? Again, it's like, well, depends who you ask on that one, right? Like, can the dark night happen without much prompting or practice? Yeah, the, the traditions will say, yeah, for some people it would, but it's rare. Yeah. Okay, so we've gotten some good basis here from the tradition. I'd love to hear more about the science as well. I mean, what can we do scientifically with these traditional teachings or with these states that tradition seems to point out? I mean, how can we start looking at these things in a more empirical way? Or how are they being looked at in an empirical way? Yeah. So when we started like the Buddhist project, the Varieties of Contemplative Experience project, it was really just first to document like what's happening, who's doing what, what are people actually reporting? Because adverse effects of meditation had not been seriously been studied like to date. There have been a couple case studies and a few discussions in, you know, in the world of like transpersonal psychology, but there hadn't been like a more empirical documentation of just what is the phenomenology? Like what are people reporting? Especially because within like the psychology of religion literature, a lot of the kind of like understanding of differential diagnosis, right? Like what's spiritual experience and what's pathological experience was based on phenomenology, right? There are certain kinds of experiences that are are pathological, whether involving a lot of impairment or a lot of distress, right, are usually, you know, two of the most important criteria. And then there's spiritual experiences. And those tended to be ones which emphasize positive feelings or changes. We found that, again, is a much more complex, like, picture going on. There are these like spiritual experiences talked about in these traditions for thousands of years, which are difficult, distressing, and impairing at certain times under certain conditions. And it's not apparent just on the phenomenology, right? Like the experts and teachers within the traditions can't always tell you just based on what a person is reporting, whether they think it's one or the other, or whether that distinction is even super relevant. Like we also found people who said, Actually, the most important thing is just to address the difficulties and the distress that's happening and to do it in a way that's like tailored to what the person is going through. Whether it's, you know, one or the other sort of recedes into the background a little bit. You know, not always, not for everyone. Some people have a firm sense of what the path entails such that you wouldn't want to interrupt certain processes that are happening and certain kinds of development by intervening in the wrong way. But for others, that wasn't really the most important kind of way that they were differentiating or choosing to address these kinds of difficulties. So just going back, I mean, the first thing was really just to map out the territory. So both in terms of phenomenology and then in terms of different appraisals, right? Different interpretations, whether 
psychopathological or spiritual or some sort of kind of mix of them. So that's kind of the first thing. I replicated that study then in these Abrahamic traditions. So asking the same questions, what are the kinds of difficulties that people are reporting and how are they interpreting them? Now we're starting to move and see more sort of larger scale survey-based epidemiological kinds of studies to see like, okay, what are the rates of adverse effects? What kinds of impairment and distress are happening you know, amongst broader segments of society? But we felt like the most important thing because it had been so under-researched was just like really doing a sort of a rich qualitative study of these kinds of practices. And with that foundation, we felt that would actually help, you know, it's larger scale research to move in, you know, fruitful directions going forward. Did anything surprise you? Yeah, nice. What's the most surprising thing you learned? I think on the Abrahamic side, just how similar some of these conceptions were, like of the dark night, right? And I mean, this is even more like of, of the text and that people are using to interpret their experiences. But the developmental sort of metaphors, particularly around like child rearing and weaning and or like learning to walk was like remarkably consistent across cultures, which was quite surprising to me. I mean, in some yeah. sense, the Jewish and the Christian traditions, the contemplative traditions are really working with a lot based on the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon in the Bible, which is this deeply erotic poem about a lover and, and their beloved and their periods where they're close together and their periods where they're apart. And so because both traditions are kind of riffing and their imaginations are being informed by this text, perhaps it's less surprising, but just in terms of like the other non-biblical metaphors that people were using, I mean, I, I was surprised at the consistency of sort of the developmental kinds of metaphors. And then, you know, again, just like the complexity of it was, was really surprising. You know, I think I thought and sort of hoped that there would be like pretty clear answers to this stuff. And it's just really darn complex. <laughs> Is this something a meditator should be worried about? Is this something they could be taking proportions against? I mean, I think there definitely should be an awareness of the power of meditative practices like more broadly, mm. right? You know, these practices, there's a reason why they've been engaged with for hundreds and thousands of years. They have tremendous potential, but just like anything powerful, right, it can sort of go in either direction. Generally speaking, you know, people doing 5, 10, 20, half an hour a day don't tend to report the more dramatic end of the spectrum in terms of contemplative experiences. That being said, it is important for people to aware that these are possible because for some amount of people, and we don't quite know what that percentage will be, they will encounter some of these experiences earlier on. And it is important to know that these are well documented within these traditions. You're not the first. And there's also sometimes a concern, particularly in some of the difficult or challenging ones, that people might feel that they did something wrong or they broke their brain or something. So the other important thing just to note is that for people who have got themselves into challenging states and territory, it is possible to find your way out, right? So it is possible through a host of different sort of practices, also just through talking to other people about them, right? So normalizing some of these experiences is quite important. Does the average meditator need to be like worried about the dark nights of the soul or things like that. 
No, probably not. But it is helpful to know that there are a range of experiences that are possible and that have been described, right, for thousands of years. And there's different ways of, of navigating them. And so if you should find yourself in this territory, right, it is helpful to find somebody who's a little bit further along who can, who can help you navigate. Yeah, great. Just to get the practical edge out of that last piece, what should you do sort of today if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh my God, that, that's me. Nice. So, I mean, one is just, you know, you're not alone. Nice. You're in good company with some of like the greatest saints and mystics and religious history. And then to say that, you know, there are support services, right? So I, in the last year, have become involved with a, a nonprofit that my colleague and mentor, Dr. Willoughby Britton, founded, which is called Cheetah House which offers support services for meditators in distress or people going through challenging meditation-related experiences. And so there are like peer support groups, there are classes, there's a peer support team of other people who have gone through these challenges and found their way out of them that you can work individually with and have a chance to talk to. There's a lot of information now, there's a lot of studies about them. And then from there, yeah, it's really, you know, we try to emphasize really, you know, person-centered approaches. So it really depends, like, what are your goals, right? So if you're like dead set on enlightenment or radical transformations of your personality or your psyche or your, you might have a little more tolerance for some challenge and distress, right? Like if you're radically trying to change your body, you'd have a little bit more tolerance for like being really sore or having days where you felt off, right? Whereas if you were seeking out meditation to relieve or to address maybe anxiety or depression or something like that, and you're not so interested in this enlightenment, like marriage to the divine kind of a thing. So then we would, you know, it would be wise to work in a different way to really like have your goals and your intentions at the forefront of, you know, how to proceed. Nathan, where can everybody find you online? Yeah, let's get people in touch with you. This is great stuff. Yeah, so happy happy to chat with anyone. I actually, I don't actually get to talk about this very often, so I appreciate it. If you just Google Nathan Fisher UCSB, you'll be able to find me through my academic page or some other pages. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It's something that we've spoken about before, but not with this level of directness. Yeah. And I really appreciate you walking us through the complexities. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm actually a big fan of the podcast. You guys are awesome. So I really appreciate it. Nice. That has been Nathan Fisher and this has been the Contemplative Science Podcast. Thank you so much as always for listening and we'll see you next week. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 